Good morning, church. Would you please turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 is our text for our morning study. If you're new with us, we have been studying through this book for a long time, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we are two chapters away from finishing, which we plan to finish on Easter Sunday morning. But in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, we come to the last account of the last judgment. We've studied the last judgment from seven perspectives since chapter 16. John has taken us all around the throne and given us a perspective, different vantage points of the one act, the last battle against evil, and the final putting down for all times of every evil power, cutting off the head of the serpent, even Satan himself, and throwing him with all of his minions into the lake of fire. Here is the last description of that last judgment, which means if Christ is not yet your Lord and Savior, this is the last time you will hear from this book the warning of the last judgment. This is the day of your salvation or must be. If you are a Christian, this is also the last time you'll hear in this book, in the study of this book, an account of the last judgment. And for you, it's very different. For a Christian, it means the reason this is the final statement of the last judgment is because it will be final. It will be the utter defeat of all wicked forces and of evil itself. And for you, this is a moment to which you must look forward. John is writing this book primarily to the church of Jesus Christ to give, its, uh, to give the church encouragement, especially the persecuted church, a church living in hard times, and so it applies to us as well. And so these, these words about the defeat of evil are to be of encouragement to us as Christians, not fearful, even though they may convict us that we must live as if the end could come at any moment and we would have opportunity to stand before Jesus and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. With anticipation then of hearing both the warnings and the warmth of the comfort of the gospel, I want you to pay attention to verse 11 of Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Which is, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This 
is the second death, that is the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. Rico Tice, the founder of Christianity Explored, an Anglican minister in England, on one occasion was visiting a friend in Australia. And uh, his friend took him to the beach at Botany Bay. And uh, seeing the beautiful beach and the, and the refreshing water and attracted to the surf, Rico started to take his shirt off to go for a swim. And his friend stopped him and said, uh, Rico, what in the world are you doing? He said, I'm going to go for a swim. That water is begging me. I've got to find I've got to find that water. I've got to go for a swim, his friend said. Did you not see the signs on the way to the beach? What signs? Like that sign, he pointed right behind him. Danger, sharks. Rico said, I said, with all the confidence of an Englishman abroad, that's not going to be a problem for me. And his friend said, well, it is your choice. 200 Australians have been killed on this beach by sharks. So you've got to decide whether that sign is a warning to save your life or it is a threat to ruin your fun. You're a grown man, he said. Rico, you make the decision. A warning to save your life or a threat to your fun? Rico said he put his shirt back on, decided he would enjoy the water from a distance. And then it made him think about judgment. Who speaks the most about hell and judgment in Scripture? Jesus. No one talks more about judgment and hell than Jesus Christ. That means that Jesus doesn't want you to go there. When Jesus died and shed his blood on the cross as a curse for sin, when he faced the fires, the threats, the, the, the judgment of hell, he did so that you may not have to go there. Jesus doesn't enjoy preaching hell because he loves to see people squirm. He does not want people to go there. And so he offered himself the perfect sacrifice to take the judgment of God against all wrath and judgment that you might not have to go there. Heaven over hell is just a prayer of faith away and a submission to the cross with your life away. It is a submission to the cross, submission to the righteousness earned on the cross, and a submission to live under that cross in joyful response to that grace. Judgment need not be a fear for you if the cross 
is yours. And if the cross of Christ is yours, its benefit of bringing you righteousness and its guidance for living a life after the pattern of Jesus, then you look at judgment no longer with fear, but with grateful anticipation that this marks the day of the end of all evil and all wickedness, sin in you, temptation outside you, unrighteousness, injustice, evil throughout all of the world. So it means that we need to look at the judgment carefully for our comfort, for our hope, as well as for our conviction to live in response to grace. That means looking at the method of judgment, the method of the trial of wickedness, as well as the manner of that trial and judgment of wickedness. So we begin in verses 11 through 13. What will be the method by which Jesus and the Father, also pictured here, will judge they will conduct the trial of every person who has ever lived. First of all, we have to get the setting before us. And John pulls back the curtain a little bit, invites us in, and he says, I want you to take a tour, once again, take a tour of the throne of God. And here you see two things about it, two adjectives. It is great, and our text says white, or we might say bright. Lucas, brilliant. It is great, and when John uses that word great, it means it is larger than any other living thing. It is bigger than anything that you have ever seen or can imagine, so as to convey to us that it is God who does the judging. It doesn't matter what our opinion is. It doesn't matter what feels right or wrong to us. It doesn't matter what we want to be right or wrong. At this day, we will recognize there is only one great throne, and it is the only God, the only one who is worthy of judging, who sits on it to render judgment on everything that we have thought or said or done. And what's more, we'll see not only that it is greater, infinitely greater than any one of us, but it is also beautiful. The word that he described, by which he describes the throne, we have translated white here, but it's brilliance, luminosity. It is to convey that it is beautiful. It is not that following Christ and the principles and the laws and the prohibitions that he gives in Scripture, it is not that they are there to ruin our fun, but they are there rather to make us truly beautiful and life to flourish the way he intended it to be. And you can only flourish, you can only thrive, you can only experience joy and glory and wonder and beauty when you're living according to His ways. So then what will He do from that throne? He will do two things. He will resurrect bodies and He will examine books. He will resurrect all bodies. You notice the text says, from His presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now, the reason earth and sky flee away is not because He is going to absolutely destroy, annihilate every created thing. 
God created the world, the cosmos, originally good, and it has been corrupted by sin. So this conveys the idea that's captured elsewhere in Scripture, 2 Peter 3 and Acts chapter 3, that God is going to restore the creation. He's going to purge it of all the vestiges of sin. He's going to cleanse it, detox it from all of the vestiges of the fall and restore and release and liberate the earth to be what it is supposed to be. And that will include ridding it of death. God never intended for death to be a part of His creation. God is essentially a giver. And he made the world to be giving. The world is to be, the earth is to give life. We are to give life and uh, service to one another. Our whole world is supposed to run on grace and giving. And instead, as a result of the fall, the whole world, including us, has resorted to taking. And the great taker of all, The great force that takes and never returns is death. And so death is God's greatest enemy. And someday he will expunge. He will exterminate. He will exorcise the earth of death. And when he does, all the bodies of Christians and non-Christians will be raised to life. You're accustomed to thinking about unbelievers, uh, believers being raised to life. We celebrate that at Resurrection. We, we talk about uh, Resurrection Day at Easter. We talk about that at every funeral for a believer. But do you know that the Bible also teaches that unbelievers will be raised to life? Their bodies will be raised to life in order that all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Because as Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, everyone must stand before God to give an account for the deeds done in the flesh. So every human being who has ever lived and will live will be gathered in front of the throne and one by one judged for what they have done while they were in their body on earth. That is one thing he will do. This great and beautiful throne will judge, Christ from that great and beautiful throne will judge everyone in the flesh. The second thing that will happen is an examination of the books. Here we find the books plural. We're accustomed to reading about the book of life. And we've been told at least six times in our study of Revelation, chapter 3, 13, uh, chapter 3, chapter 13, chapter 17, and so on, uh, that, uh, that those who are born again, those who, who surrender their lives to Christ, their name is written in the book of life. Or as the psalmist says, record that this one was born in Zion. And when you recognize that you can't save yourself and you need the righteousness of Christ, you say, please, forgive me of my sin, substitute my sin with your righteousness, and 
give me your cross that I might follow you and live with you as my Lord for the rest of my days. Your name then is written in the Lamb's book of life. But notice in this text, or and notice in our text, verse 13, the dead were judged, all of these dead who are now made alive in their bodies, Christians and non-Christians, are judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We put it together and together with all the other verses of Scripture dealing with judgment, and this is what we get. That each person appears before the judgment seat of Christ, and a book is opened to look for your name written there. The one who has taken Christ as Lord and Savior, their name your name written there. But then it is cross-checked, apparently, against another book. It's not named, it's just another book, but we might call it the book of deeds. And it's cross-checked to ask, are there deeds in this person's life that are in keeping with their profession of faith? Bible teaches that everywhere. They'll be judged according to the deeds done in the flesh. The tree is known by its fruit. Without faith, without works, faith is dead. You are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which He prepared for you in advance to do. I'm crucified with Christ, therefore no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the good that I do, I live by, and the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everywhere, the Bible, there's no place where the Bible says you can take Jesus as your Savior and never live with him as your Lord. But rather, the truth, the proof that you are born again burns its way out of you because Jesus is living in you. The Holy Spirit is making you alive. That truth of your conversion burns its way out of you by doing his will. Not perfectly, of course, we confess our sins. But the Father will look at our lives and he'll say, is there anything, did this person ever keep one of the Ten Commandments? And not just the what it is negatively, but positively. Did they, did they, uh, did they covet? Uh, well, uh, did, they, did they do more than that? Did they actually celebrate what the good happening to another person? Did they did they steal? Okay, they didn't steal, but did they actually assist other people in coming into financial security? Do they lie? Uh, well, maybe they didn't tell obvious lies, but did they live as a, a double life? Did they keep the Ten Commandments? Did they? And Jesus will ask, we're told in Matthew 25, He will ask, did you feed me? Did you clothe me? Did you visit me? Did you show love to the least of these, my brothers? Those whose lives are joined to Christ will not only have their names written in the book of life, but their, their deeds will be recorded in the book of deeds. And the Bible adds something else through Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. Not only will our deeds be, be recorded, but the motive of our deeds... He says our works will be submitted to fire and only those done for the glory of God will come forth shining as gold. So did we do what we did perfunctorily or did we, did we do it in response to God's grace? 
It is daunting, isn't it? And here's the way you should respond. If you're an unbeliever, you should be quaking and saying, I cannot face the judgment on my own. Jesus, save me. If you're a disobedient believer saying, I've taken Christ as my Savior, but I'm going to live the way I want to live from now on in my mind or in my body, this should wake you up and return you to say, someday, as full of yourself as you feel today, you will be put in your place at the great, dazzling throne of Christ. For the one who has a a very tender, hypersensitive conscience, you must remember that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that the books, the books will record not just our names because we have put our names, not our names because we've put our names there. It will record not our deeds because we've put our deeds there, but they will record our name and our deeds because Christ has put them there. Christ has written our name there because he saved us. And Christ will write those deeds there because he is living in us. What must we do then? What is our duty? Our duty is constantly to go to Christ and say, save me, Lord, make me faithful. Make me one who responds faithfully to your love. We're running out of time. Let me quickly take us to the second major point of this passage, and it is not just the method of the trial, but the manner of the judgment that we find in verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is that second death. Last, time we, last week we learned about first and second death. The first death is when, you, when any of us dies and an unbeliever never dies, I mean, a believer never dies again. We die once in the body, our soul goes to heaven, and then eventually our body is raised from the dead and joined, and we never die again. We only die once. We live forever. A second death describes that death that comes to those unbelievers whose bodies were raised to life, and they're judged. They died once physically, and now upon their judgment, they will die an even more profound death for eternity in hell. The manner of that judgment is twofold. It's eternal, and it is customized. That whatever happens there at that judgment is eternal. It is once and for all. Even unbelievers can recognize the truth of this. They, if we are, think carefully about it, this is the way we want things to be. We can't have hope in this life if we don't know that if someday all evil and every action will be dealt with justly. We don't want to live in a world where everyone may determine his or her version of right and wrong. We don't live, want to live in a world. We can't live in a world and flourish in a world in which uh, everybody determines their own ethics and in which uh, God may sweep sin under the rug. We can only thrive and live in a world where God will deal justly with every action 
and do so eternally. Even unbelievers recognize that, like Madonna, not the mother of Jesus, I mean the singer, who said in a documentary in 2005, shortly after she had become a Jewish mystic, the material world, the physical world, the world of illusion that we think is real, we live for it, we're enslaved by it. And it will ultimately be our undoing. People are going to go to hell if they don't turn from their wicked behavior. She gives evidence of what the Bible tells us, that the law of God is written, engraved on our hearts and in our consciences. The good news for us is that eternally, even though temporarily now we see wrong winning out or we see injustices and, and we see evil, we may know eternally that will not be so. Eternally, righteousness will be established and the right ways and the beautiful ways of God will be established for the glory of God into all of eternity. And secondly, we have to recognize that in this manner of trial that that judgment will be customized. You notice verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Our trust as Christians is in what Christ has done for us and what He is doing through us. Our trust as Christians is that He is working His works, His deeds out of us, and He is covering where they are insufficient with the blood of atonement. And then we may take this comfort that all of those evil deeds that are not under the blood of Christ, every wickedness ever done will be punished eternally not only in individuals, but the wickedness we have done, separated from us by, by Christ, that, wicked, that wickedness, that category of sin, that itself will also be removed and destroyed forever and ever. And it will be in a very satisfying way. I told you some months ago about a young woman named Callan Taylor, who was a a teacher in an inner city school for disadvantaged students, at-risk students in inner city uh, San Francisco. She had the crazy idea as an English teacher that she would teach her students, inner city students, the Commedia, the Divine Commedia, the uh, Dante's uh, uh, Paradise and uh, Paradiso and, and the Inferno. They loved it. Now, they didn't have time to go in, into it in, in detail as much as they wanted to in class. So she said, let's meet on Saturday and go through it. They showed up. They loved it. And the, 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 the correspondent covering the story that I heard on the radio some time ago uh, wondered, what in the world? Why in the world are these kids? And she gave two explanations. One, she said, kids love justice. Everybody wants justice. 
And here, especially these in their world where it doesn't seem that there is justice and that they are victims of injustice, here it is comforting to think that even in this 14th century document, here is a promise of what God is going to do someday. The second reason, she said, it's because it's graphic. And she meant by that it's specific. Dante goes through every category of evil and describes the kind of judgment he envisions, not necessarily biblical, but the kind of judgment from biblical principles he envisions those, those sins receiving. For instance, those who sowed division, those who divided people, who created schisms. He envisions people like that huddled together on the edge of a cliff, and they're not quite sure where the edge is, and then their, their eyelids are sewn shut with wire so that they can never see, and they're forced to huddle closely with those with whom they have consorted and conspired for eternity. Not pleasant. Those who are flatterers, those who have made their way through life by telling somebody one thing to their face and then another thing behind their back in order to do what is most self-serving. Those, he says, will be face down in a river of excrement for all of eternity. And those in the deepest pit of hell, farthest away from all other human beings in a place where only animals should be, in the deepest, darkest, hottest part of hell will be liars and frauds, Dante said, because, Dante said, liars and frauds will be in that place because they sinned against love and community. Sounds pretty contemporary, doesn't it? That is, the talk about community is not a new thing. God made us to be givers, to love each other, to move toward unity, to move toward love and service. It angers Him when it's being torn apart. As troubling as that is, the believer will be convicted and say, of course, this is what I need to be doing. This is, I'm going to, Jesus, help me to live faithfully in this area. And then deeply satisfied that, Lord Jesus, even though it appears that this sin, this wrong, this evil is, is triumphing and succeeding, you have promised me not only will it be dealt with, but in a deeply satisfying way. Let me close with this image. You know, in our catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is in the back of the hymnal there, question number 38 is, what benefits do believers, will believers receive at the resurrection? And the answer is, at the resurrection, believers will be openly acknowledged and acquitted before the throne of judgment and raised to life for the full enjoyment of God forever. What this tells us is Jesus sees you. He sees the wrong. 
He sees what he is doing in you and when you're doing the right. And someday, with Christ as your Savior, you will be openly acknowledged and acquitted and made fully blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. It's like this. I have a friend who many years ago had a law partner named Jim Crawford. They'd just been gotten out of law school. They'd started their little practice, and they were, uh, they were uh, in a small town in Iowa trying to make it as lawyers. And they, they had a trial that was out of town, so they rented a cheap motel, and they were there working on that, that, on that trial. And while they were there, the Olympics was, was, was on, and they, and they were watching the Olympics. Jim Crawford was dying of cancer, and he knew it. As a young man, he was dying of cancer. He was trying to do his best for his family until he died. He was a believer. He was dying of cancer. And he was sitting there watching the Olympics, and my friend said, I could only imagine he was thinking, what a failure my life is. I've worked so hard to get through law school. I've tried to provide for my family, and now I'm going to die and leave them with all this. My life is over. And look at all these, these stellar accomplishments by these incredible athletes and the, the, the athletes were being announced for a coming event and a coming competition. And uh, they were being announced one by one. Pyotr Bolotnikov of the Soviet Union. <sighs> Murray Hallberg of New Zealand. Mohammed Gamudi of Tunisia. Billy Mills, the United States of America. <sighs> Jim Crawford said, man, just to hear one time a stadium of people saying, Jim Crawford of Iowa. A few months later, he died. My friend gave the eulogy at his funeral. My friend was not only a graduate of law school, he was a graduate of seminary, so he knew his theology. He knew this was only a manner of speaking, but he said, when Jim arrived at heaven, he was openly acknowledged, Jim Crawford of Iowa. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the way we want to finish. It requires submitting to the cross now for your righteousness as well as for your living. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray for those who have yet to receive Christ that they would buy that Simple prayer of faith. Say, Jesus, save me of my sins and become my Lord. And then join with the rest of us in saying, Jesus, enable us to persevere in, uh, to the end that we might be openly acknowledged and acquitted of all our sin and made fully blessed in the full enjoying of God into all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray it, and God's people said, amen.